This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, from history to, well, just about any story you send us. And we love producing those stories and sending them back to you, putting them on the airwaves, because the American people live extraordinary lives, and you have extraordinary stories to tell. And by the way, we also love telling stories about our great American artists, And periodically, we do readings from some of the great American literary works. We've had Vincent Price reading The Raven, a remarkable reading from The Old Man and the Sea, Hemingway's great novel, or almost long, short story. Thomas Paine's Common Sense, the reading for that is terrific. And when you hear it, you're going to be thinking, my goodness, we're arguing about the same things we did almost two and a half centuries ago. And my favorite, The Great Gatsby, one of my favorite American novels, and we have a dramatic reading from the end of that, and you can go to ouramericannetwork.org and search for any of those, and they're terrific and they're beautiful to listen to. Up next, from Boston, is a man who discovered a love for poetry as an adult, and, well, you wouldn't think that the job that he has would be conducive to a guy who, well, really has a taste for poetry. Let's take a listen to this story from a member of our audience in the Boston area. My name's John Doherty. I'm from Brenton, Massachusetts, 34 years old, and I'm a construction worker for the Boston Gas Company. We do outside construction work, providing natural gas for residents or businesses. So uh, a lot of um, digging laying pipelines, tapping into gas mains, all outdoor work. The satisfying thing about the job is you're working with a dangerous element, really. So it's, it's important to be exact in everything you do. You certainly don't want to leave any kind of a gas leak behind. So, um, you know, you have to be careful. You have to pay attention. Poetry was, was definitely intimidating initially. Uh, It just looked like a lot of words that were out of order and out of place and uh, did not belong together. And that's that's the challenge of it. It just takes a lot of reading and rereading to grasp it. But once you do, once you come to understand it, you've achieved something. So now you feel good. Song of Myself is a poem that I probably had a lot of difficulty understanding the first time. And there were certain lines that caught me and that I liked. And when I got to the very end of this very long poem, um, the last half dozen lines, uh, so encouraging. He, in those last few lines, Whitman tells you what you're thinking. He says that you probably didn't understand what you just read, but stay with it and you will and you'll love it. And so it felt like it was speaking directly to me when I first read it, and I keep those lines in mind no matter what I read now. The connection I feel with Walt Whitman's poem, Song of Myself, is not due to the fact that he talks about laborers, physical labor working outside, and like the common working American. Uh, that's a nice touch in it, of course, but. I enjoyed it for its, its 
upliftingness, its its ability to inspire me and and see things in life and in everyday existence that I hadn't noticed before, that I might have taken it for granted before. Song of Myself by Walt Whitman. There is that in me. I do not know what it is, but I know it is in me. Wrenched and sweaty, calm and cool, then my body becomes. I sleep, I sleep long. I do not know it, it is without name. It is a word unsaid. It is not in any dictionary, utterance, symbol. Something it swings on more than the earth I swing on. To it, the creation is the friend whose embracing awakes me. Perhaps I might tell more. Outlines. I plead for my brothers and sisters. Do you see, O oh my brothers and sisters? It is not chaos or death. It is form, union, plan. It is eternal life. It is happiness. The spotted hawk swoops by and accuses me. He complains of my gab and my loitering. I too am not a bit tamed. I too am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yop over the roofs of the world. The last scud of day holds back for me. It flings my likeness after the rest, and true as any on the shadowed wilds. It coaxes me to the vapor and the dusk. I depart as air. I shake my white locks at the runaway sun. I effuse my flesh in eddies and drift it in lacy jags. I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. And thank you to John Doherty, a construction worker from Braintree, Massachusetts. And that is the thing about art, folks. It hits us all. It hits our humanity, no matter what our work, no matter what our income, no matter our race and ethnicity or geography. And that's the thing about Walt Whitman's work. And again, thank you to John Doherty, and that's Braintree, Massachusetts, a construction worker who loves the structure and the poetry and the meaning and loves that it uplifts him. And that's what we try to do here on this show every day. People want more beautiful things in their life, and that's what we aim to do here. This is Lee Habib, John Doherty's story, his love affair with poetry, and Walt Whitman here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. And that music cues us for one of our favorite regular features. And that's The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. And she writes that column weekly for the Wall Street Journal. And for all of you who think you're going to go to the journal and just get highfalutin finance, our favorite part of the journal is the personal journal. And one of our favorite people who writes regularly for the personal journal is Heidi Mitchell. And her latest question, how often should I replace my coffee mug in the office? And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you know, I need Heidi, a cup of coffee right now. I, I need two, and I, I drink soda, so <laughs> I don't drink coffee. I get my caffeine from Coca-Cola, but you could say the same about my Coke mug. So we'll, we'll oh. have to, I know it's gross, but let's talk about how did, where, why this one, Heidi? Is there someone in your office who has what we call the really gross coffee mug? It's more just the the devotion to the coffee mug that people who have worked in the same office at the journal or wherever for forever, they haven't never replaced them. So you'll go to the you know, the kitchen and wash your mug out or whatever, make microwave your lunch and in the cabinet are these sort of verboten mugs that have been there for fifteen, twenty years. <laughs> you're not allowed to use them. Yeah, you're so not the allowed question to... was like, Whose are these and why are they so attached to these and is it unsafe to have the same disgusting brown mug? sitting in there for years yeah and by the way it's not only that you can't use them some people won't even let you look at them or touch them it's so personal (laughs) no don't look at my mug do not look at my mug (laughs) i mean you get attached to these things they're hard to find the perfect mug i i I understand that so so tell me this first uh, heidi do you use the same coffee mug from your early writing days i'm the worst because i i get my coffee from the guy at the cart and I don't spend more than a dollar on my coffee. I probably spend less than any average American on coffee, on any coffee-drinking American, because I just get it from the cup, from the cup, from the guy in the street. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. Well, this, this, gives, get a mug. this allows you to be dispassionate about this. And, and what's <laughs> the worry here, Heidi? You, you, you have a mug, or your mug's near one of these other mugs? Because that's what I always worry about. It's like too much contact to that, that diseased or old mug. Do I have anything to worry about? Does anybody have anybody to worry? Anybody have anything to worry about, Heidi? You know, there are few um, germs that can last more than an hour on an inert object like a like a mug. So you really don't have anything to worry about. I mean, they're, they're, it's not like the germs are going to jump from one mug to the next. I guess that they're touching, maybe, but you need a critical mass to get you sick. So you really don't, there's never been a case as far as the NIH or, or any major uh, institutions have known about that people were, there was a, a mass breakout of infection due to coffee mugs. So your mug sitting next to another mug. It's cool. It's, your mug's fine. Your so mug's, so you what about that, fine. you know, we have a friend in the studio who, when we described the, uh, the office coffee mug, talked about his dad's and how his dad would just never, ever replace it. And, you know, it would start to get him nervous. Talk about that. Also, talk about Navy sailors who take really great pride in what I call or what you call seasoning the mug, seasoning the mug. I like that. I love this. Um, so, so I was talking to, uh, you know, this Dr. Stark, who, um, you know, he was the director of infection control at a hospital in Texas for 22 years. And, and you're talking about, you know. about Dr. Jeffrey Stark, a professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And what I love here, Heidi, is that in the end, you always call some expert who has an expertise in almost everything in every walk of American life. I just love that yes. part of your column. Who knew? 
Who oh, knew no. these people existed? Yep. Right. Well, he, he couldn't find any studies that were specifically on coffee mugs and germs that lurk inside of them. But he did have this great anecdote about um, how, like you said, that in the Navy, they take this great pride. There's a thing called, um, uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, seasoning their mugs. So, um, so he said there, there was some... If you Google it, you can see on these like Navy blogs that um, the first thing your sergeant will tell you is don't wash your mug. And that supposedly the Navy coffee is just toxic. And so the, the longer you let it, it your, your coffee mug turn brown over months and years, the better that your coffee will taste. There's not data to back this up, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. So seasoning your mug, letting it turn, you know how it turns brown on the inside yep. from the black coffee? So, uh, so yeah, so it, there's no data that says that this unwashed mug or this blackness that sits inside of the, of the mug, un, empty, unwashed mug, is bad for you. doesn't harbor germs, doesn't harbor infectious disease, hasn't resulted in any outbreaks. So, um, so you, you know, you don't really need to even wash out your mug. You can just rinse out your mug. Kind of gross. It is kind of like, gross. It is kind of, but here's where it gets grosser. Dr. Stark, this is, I'm going to quote from your article, Heidi, and I know writers generally don't like having their own work quoted back at them, but here's Dr. Stark's quote, which you include in the piece. Now, if you leave cream or sugar in your mug over the weekend, now that can certainly cause mold to grow. And if your mug had obvious signs of mold, you might not want to drink from it. Talk about that, Heidi. I think that's fairly obvious, but haven't you done that where you like, I mean, my dad's a big, oh, he does this all the time where he buys a coffee in the morning, then he leaves it in the car all day, and then the next morning he's like, meh, and I'll just drink his coffee from the car. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you can see there's like kind of oil spills on top and all this stuff, the lint in the air that's fallen onto it. It's just disgusting. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess the first thing you do when you get to your office is just like pour out whatever's in there, rinse it out, and then you can start your Keurig or whatever they have at your office um, and fill your mug. But, um, you know, if it has obvious signs of like, you know, that, that it will cause almost like a crust of that white creamer is just the worst, but milk will curdle too. It's just gross. You can totally tell. Yeah. But, you know, if you rinse it out, it doesn't like the, the, I asked about the ceramic and the glaze and that stuff won't, it won't hold in that bacteria or viruses or anything like that. They, they can't live for more than like a year, so a, an hour. So like even overnight, if you had rinsed out your mug and left it sitting there and there's like little bits of coffee in there, it's, it's not going to leave um, any like whatever legionnaires or whatever in there. Well, that's good to know, Heidi. By the way, I have a rule in my family, and that is that dad is not allowed to take takeout food ever again from anywhere because I will take it, stick it underneath the seat, and then I'll leave it <gasps> underneath the seat for anywhere from two days to two months until one day we all discover that dad's oh. done it again, and there's all kinds of things growing oh in the car. Gosh. Yeah, it's terrible. I do want to know that how long can food last? Because we have a debate in my house about leftovers. Nobody eats the leftovers. And then four days later, I'm like, I feel like it has to go in the garbage. My mother, I'm living with her in the summer, she's like, oh, no, it's good for a week. I really don't think cooked food <laughs> in the fridge is good for a week. No, I don't Coffee think so Coffee from either. yesterday is also not good. <laughs> no, it's not. So knowing all we know... Uh, how should we wash our mugs, and how often should we wash them? Okay, so well, this is an interesting one. You should wash your mug with like a little dab of soap and some warm water. He says, like a lot of people said, well, there were some a lot of things online, but you could take the super hot water that comes out of the spigot sometimes, or on one of those on like 
mulligan ones and um, colligan ones and, and fill your uh, mug with some hot water and then just swish it around and pour it out. But what you don't want to do is use the sponge because of all the nasty things in your office, besides, you know, that coworker that you don't like, that sponge is the grossest thing in the office. Um, it ha- has everyone's germs on it from all the food that they clean, that they clean, that, you know, the place they clean that the food off with and their dirty hands and whether or not they used the bathroom and didn't wash their hands and then pick up the sponge. And so the sponge is really disgusting. So don't use that on your, um, on your mug when you're cleaning it. But, you know, if you accidentally use that verboten mug that's sitting in the, in the cabinet and maybe that person's out sick and you've always wanted to try the I Love Mom mug that's sitting in there, um, what's great is that you don't have to worry about getting sick from it because, as Dr. Stark said, um, normal germ- people's normal germs really won't make you sick. He said if they did, then we would have to ban kissing. Well, that's a that's a fair point, though. There are some people I don't know if I want to kiss them because their mouths are receptacles of diseases, too. That's true, too. Oh, well, Heidi, what are you doing? Anything special for your Christmas season? I'm going to my motherland, my homeland of New York City. Well, so good. I'll be there for a few weeks, a few days, just, you know, pretending like I still live there. Good for you. If you have a chance, if you have a chance and you're in Brooklyn, ask a uh-huh. cab driver to take you to Spumoni Gardens. And if you haven't ever been there in your life, You'll thank me after you have their pizza. It's truly Spumoni the most... Spumoni Gardens. Spumoni Gardens. Dan- Brooklyn. I'm Googling it as you speak. Avenue U. It's a legend. It's been, on every, it's been featured on almost every cooking network, but my friends in Brooklyn don't know about it. Every time I go back to even Manhattan, I demand to go out to Spumoni Gardens. I'm promising you, you won't regret it. Heidi, as right. always, we love having you on. Uh, have a happy holidays, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the other side. Thank you. Take care. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. And she, of course, writes that for the personal journal, a part of the Wall Street Journal. Go to WSJ.com to get America's paper. It's simply the best paper in the world. And again, this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about music. One of our favorite recurring segments is the story of a song. We've done all kinds. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look it up there on the topic section. I think we got about 20, everything from the doors to country music. One of my favorites, There Goes My Life, the story of Kenny Chesney's hit. But there are so many from every musical idiom. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Story of a song. And what were we listening to as we bumped in was Christina Aguilera's Candyman, which was written by our next storyteller, Linda Perry. According to Aguilera and Perry, the song was a tribute to the Andrews Sisters, iconic World War II song recorded in 1941, the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B. Ever wonder how a chart-topping hit single is made? 
Well, here's Greg Hengler. Most of our story of a songs have been based on timeless and relatively deep songs. What we are about to do now is tell the story of a song that falls into, let's say, a less profound category. To tell this story is former lead singer and songwriter of the early 90s rock group, Four Non Blondes, Linda Perry. Remember them? Linda Perry left the band in 1994, started two record labels, and began writing and producing hit songs for the likes of Gwen Stefani, Adele, Alicia Keys, and Christina Aguilera. Here she is to tell the story of how one of her hit singles was created. Perry said that the process of making the song was so unlike me. According to her, she was going through a weird phase during which she wanted to learn how to program drums. Here's Linda Perry. I'm very, you know, I'm always interested in things. And so, like, I, I called up a friend. I'm like, what's that sound out there right now that you're hearing on the radio and stuff? And they're like, oh, you got to get a Triton. It's a, called a Triton keyboard. I'm like, a Triton keyboard. All right. And then what? what's that sound on the drums? Like, what's that thing? It's obviously not real drums, but what's that? Oh, those are MPCs. You get these programs, and there are programmed sounds already, and you can create your own, and you just put it in. It loads these sounds, and you got kick snares. I'm like, MPC, you know? I'm like, and then what would be like if you could get like a, a, a you know, like a program of some sort that had like all different types of sounds? What would that be? Oh, that would be the rolling blah 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 expansion thing that has all these cards. Okay, great, thanks. You know, and so I go to Guitar Center and I buy all these things. I come back, I plug it all in, my MPC, my my whatever Triton, and so I'm like, okay, all right, all right. What does this thing do? Okay, let me. All right, well, let me start with the beat. Basic enough. All right, loop that down. Okay. I need a bass part that goes with that, and I can't find a bass sound, so I'm like, all right, let me just pick up my real bass for right now until I figure out with that. So I pick up my real bass, just sub it out. Boom, 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 boom. Do, 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 boom, boom, boom. All right, okay, cool, that's cool, all right. Oh, what's this thing doing? I'm opening up all the sound. Clav, you know, this, you know, horns, and I just start adding all these things. I mean, everything. I mean, I have harpsichord, clav, horns, I don't know what that sound is. I mean, just there's so many sounds going on, and I just add it all. Little percussions. Oh, percussions. Just like never in a million years. Percussions in here? And now I'm just fascinated, and I'm just having a good time. All right, okay, I need Wawa, and this doesn't have Wawa. Okay, I can get my guitar, put other Wawa. All right. All right, now I need some kind of vocal, you know, and then I pick up my bullet microphone because I, I know I don't want to sound like Linda. This is a character. So I pull up a harmonica microphone, run it through this compressor, compress the hell of it. I'm like, okay, what is this song? You know, okay, now I'm going to do something Linda never does. Think, pre-think of lyrics, pre-think of a concept, you know. Never done that before. So I'm like, okay. 
I'm gonna think of every cliche I can think of. And then I just started singing the song about, okay, I'm coming up, so you better get this part. And all the lyrics just started, you know, pull up to the bumper up in my Mercedes Benz, you know, like just like joking and laughing as, and I'm like writing this stuff down as I'm singing. And then I recorded, literally, this all took place in a matter of 15 to 20 minutes, okay? 15 to 20 minutes. And then I'm done. It's already pre-mixed because everything is just all right there. I mean, you don't have to do much, you know, with that kind of stuff. I call up my manager. I play it to her on the phone, and she's all, what's that? I go, I just wrote a dance hit, and I knew it was a hit, you know. And she's like, well, you can't do it. I'm like, no, it's not for me. It's got to be for somebody else. Who do we think of, you know? And I'm thinking Madonna. I'm thinking, you know, we got to get it to whatever and life is just a beautiful thing. Life is just, it's, this is, again, the best thing I can just tell in general that has nothing to do with what you're talking about in this story, but life just wants to give. It wants to give you gifts. It has so many gifts to give you, but you just have to be open to receive them. Because once you're open, once you put your hand out, life is gonna give you a gift. A week later, this crazy girl calls me, leaving this radical message on my machine. It sounds like a nut, you know, like, I don't know what this girl's going on. Are you Linda from Four Non Blonde? I think she's a fan. It sounds like, who is this? My name is Pink, you know, I'm whatever. And I start asking, do you know Pink? Oh, yeah, this girl, she's a white chick, R&B girl, pink hair. And then this video comes on, and I'm seeing this, there you go, bling, bling, ching, ching. And I'm like, no, this girl, she's got the wrong girl. Like, she wants to write with me or wants me to sing on her album. That's it. And when I met her, I was like, it was like we connected, bam. And then I played her, get the party started. I gave it to her. And I think it was two days later, she called me back or the L.A. Reed called my manager or something like that and said, we got our first single. Is Linda interested in writing some more with her? Get the Party Started was released November 2001 as the lead single to her album Misunderstood and peaked at number one on the American charts. It became a worldwide hit, reaching number one in Australia, Ireland, New Zealand, Romania, and Spain. In 2002, Pink headlined a tour of America, Europe, and Australia, the Party Tour, as well as becoming a supporting act for Lenny Kravitz's American tour. Thanks to this single, Pink was named the top female Billboard 200 artist of 2002. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Story. And what a great story. Greg Hengler is always digging him out for us. And the story of his song, very different than the rest of our stories of this song, the way the song got put together. I remember when this song came out and the girls would just rush to the dance floor. I never figured out why women rush to some songs and not others. Guys don't generally rush out onto the dance floor. They follow, and they follow the lead and do their best, I think, most of us to just uh, come along and move along and dance along. But great storytelling as always, Greg. And by the way, the next time anyone talks to you about 
the Constitution or the founders, and it seems so ephemeral to you, a discussion about it. Remember, it was Benjamin Franklin during the constitutional debates who insisted that property rights and intellectual property rights be protected. And so we had both of them protected. Article 1, the patent. And so all of our arts spring from this. All of the ideas of all the storytellers that we feature, the writers, the artists, everything. Not just products, folks. Ideas protected by our founding fathers and the Constitution. None of American culture possible without it exporting it to the world. The story of a song, the story of let's get the party started here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when looking back through animation history, there are very few cartoons with as devoted a following as Scooby-Doo. And on this day in history in 1969, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? premiered on Saturday morning on CBS. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story. Nineteen sixty-nine. America was approaching its fourteenth year fighting in Vietnam. A serial killer calling himself the Zodiac terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area with cryptic letters. Actress Sharon Tate and four others were brutally murdered at the hands of Charles Manson and his counterculture family of so-called flower children. With all this happening, the song topping the charts was this. Sugar. Sugar Sugar was originally recorded by the fictional garage band The Archies, spawned from the cartoon series The Archies, which itself was based on the long-running comic book series. This version reached number one in the U.S. on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1969 and remained there for four weeks. It was the tail end of animation's golden age and the early years of television animation in particular. Parent advocacy groups like the now-defunct Action for Children's Television were pressuring television networks to drop violent action-adventure Saturday morning cartoons like The Herculoids. Fred Silverman, the head executive in charge of children's animation at CBS, sought new programming that would keep his Saturday morning block afloat while simultaneously keeping parental watchdogs off his back. The solution was to hopefully expand upon the massive success CBS found with the Archie show. So, 
Silverman contacted William Hanna and Joseph Barbera to develop a show in the Archie mold. Hanna-Barbera Productions were early pioneers in TV animation, having created shows like Tom and Jerry, Yogi Bear, The Smurfs, The Jetsons, and America's first primetime animated series, The Flintstones. Just keep your eye on the ball, Bonnie boy. The new Archie style show was initially called House of Mystery that would feature a teenage rock band and would solve mysteries in between gigs. Iwao Takamoto, an animation vet who got his start at Disney in the 40s, was assigned as designer of the project. From here, the series took shape as Mysteries 5. Much like the Archies, the band was also joined by a dog named Too Much, who played the bongos. Designer Takamoto, who had previously designed Astro from the Jetsons, took particular care in crafting Too Much by consulting one of his workmates a breeder of Great Danes. But after studying these prize-winning Great Danes, Takamoto ignored their signature characteristics, making too much bow-legged, with a sloped back and a double chin. When the show was finally pitched to CBS, the band was phased out. The name of the leader of the group, Ronnie, was changed to Fred after a subtle suggestion from Fred Silverman. An easily frightened and always hungry talking dog too much was renamed Scooby-Doo. Inspiration for his new name came while Fred Silverman listened to Sinatra's Strangers in the Night on a cross-country flight. CBS ordered 17 episodes and the show was introduced to generations of children on September 13, 1969 as Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Just a few weeks before Sesame Street premiered. What's remarkable about Scoob's first episode is that it established everything that the franchise would be known for, from the plot structure to the visuals, making each episode feel unique yet familiar by inserting different monsters, settings, gags, etc. Let's take a deep dive into this mystery, getting some help from the gang who created the show. Jinkies! Jeepers! Zoinks! Come on, gang! Let's split up and look for more clues. Quick, do something, Scoob. <laughs> Here's the voice of Scooby-Doo, Don Messick. Well, in many cases, there are much younger children who don't understand that there are real people behind the character voices. And so usually they're kind of excited to, to learn that that's how the magic comes about. Here's animation historian Mark Evaner. Don Messick did the voice of Scooby-Doo originated, and Don was just brilliant at breathing life to that character. Here's the voice of the snack-loving beatnik Shaggy, legendary disc jockey Casey Kasem. Well, I think Don got into the psyche of an animal that was very much like Scooby-Doo. That dog was alive, and it was, it was a being, a human being. He just invested that character with so much personality and made him so funny that it's impossible not to love him. Do I get a Scooby star? We'll look for one after we're off the camera here. Uh, okay. <laughs> Scooby Dooby Doo. I just got the idea for a trap that'll solve this mystery. Listen. Here's the voice of the confident all American ascot wearing Fred, Frank Welker. 
I would have to describe Fred as being uh, the guy in the group who has a license, and that's why the other kids have him around, so he can drive the mystery machine. Hang on, gang! The way that I got the part for Freddy, I was doing a stand-up routine, and within this routine, I did like a dog and cat fight, a lot of, you know, and this executive said, you know, we're doing a show called Scooby-Doo, and there's a dog, why don't you come in and audition for Scooby-Doo? And I said, great. So I went over there and I got the script and I saw Shaggy. This is me, funny character. You know, and I'm always playing the straight guys. And so I sit down and meet Casey and he's just fantastic. I said, well, what part are you reading for? And he says, oh, I'm reading for Shaggy and I want to read for Freddy character I wanted to do was Fred and so they said no we, we'd like you to read the the other character Shaggy I said oh okay well uh, what is it you want and uh, he said well, come up with something and uh, what I came up with was Scoobo buddy old friend old pal it's me <laughs> your friend Shaggy like what my favorite a double triple decker sardine and marshmallow fudge sandwich open them out between the gums look out stomach here it comes they called me back three times and the third time apparently they they uh, they saw what they liked and so they they hired me well gang i guess that wraps up another mystery here's the voice of the bespeckled bookish velma nicole jaffe my glasses! I can't see without my glasses. It was not my real voice, but it wasn't that far away. Velma lisps, I lisp. Velma has kind of a slightly kooky voice. I guess my voice is slightly kooky. I think my character set a good example for girls. They didn't have to follow around. They could lead. They could have the ideas. That's what I always liked about my character. Here's the voice of the attractive, accident-prone Daphne, Heather North. That's your cue, Daph. Right. Oh, no. My finger's stuck in the keys. I can't work the trick. Danger-prone Daphne did it again. Danger-prone Daphne. Yeah. Wait! Help me! The girl that had played Daphne for a short period of time had left and gone to New York to get married. Nicole Jaffe David was my roommate and said, get in here. They're looking for Daphne. You can do Daphne. Jeepers! I'm doing Velma. We could, we could do this together. This would be great fun. And I auditioned and got the part. And that was my first, really my first job as an agent, was getting her this. Together, these characters formed Mystery Inc. and embarked on countless mysteries to seek out the truth in their van dubbed The Mystery Machine. Predictably, the monsters always turned out to be humans in disguise. And I'd have done it, too, if you kids hadn't come along. And contrary to popular belief, the phrase meddling kids is never mentioned until episode 20 during season two. And it would have been mine if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. But even then, it was not muttered with much consistency, only being said twice in the original series. After season one of Scooby-Doo, the series was a rating smash hit. Up to 65% of the Saturday morning audience was tuning in to Scooby-Doo, and its popularity hasn't slowed down to this day. There have been many spin-offs, blockbuster movies, and merchandising, but the heart of the characters has remained. And thanks to reruns, a new generation of kids get to enjoy Scoob in the game as they solve their mysteries.
I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and that happens to be Greg's favorite cartoon, and he still loves it, and we all love our favorites. Scooby-Doo's story here on Our American Stories, this day in history in 1969, it premiered. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, always remember that because of our Constitution and because of the patent right, intellectual property is possible in this great country for artists to have their rights secured in ideas like Scooby-Doo, Straight to Bob Dylan, our greatest movies, all of our arts and culture, straight from our Constitution. This is Our American Stories. If we can count on you, Scooby-Doo, I know we'll catch that villain. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And if you would care to sign up for our newsletter, go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll promise you our five best stories of the week, transcribed if you'd like to read them, and if you'd love to hear the terrific production values that we bring to each and every story, you can listen to them. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter. Send us your email address. And we'll give you our five best stories each week. And we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to history and to sports. And we love talking about, well, innovation and engineering. And the Lockheed SR-71, known as the Blackbird, is a long-range Mach 3 strategic reconnaissance aircraft that was operated by the U.S. Air Force from 1964 to 1998. At sustained speeds of more than Mach 3.2, the plane was faster than the Soviet Union's fastest interceptor, the MiG-25, which also could not reach the SR-71's altitude. During its service life, no SR-71 was ever shot down. And now we bring you to Major Brian Schull, U.S. Air Force retired, who relays the true story of a ground speed check while piloting the SR-71 Blackbird over Southern California. It's called the LA Speed Story. And I, it was just a story about one day it was really cool being, being SR-71 pilot. Walter and I were doing a training mission around the United States where you just were building up hours and time. And we take off out of Beale, hit a tanker in Idaho, rip on up to uh, Montana, zip across Denver, hang a right turn in Albuquerque, out over Los Angeles, up to Seattle, back into Sacramento. Two hours, 21 minutes. And you just do that for, and you do it backwards, and you hit a tanker. It was just, just to gain crew coordination, get, build your hours. We're on our last training mission. We're over Tucson. I can see downtown LA from Tucson. We're at 89,000 feet. I can see the whole western United States bathed in a warm October fall glow. I can see the chain of Rocky Mountains from Canada to New Mexico. I could, I could just see the most beautiful picture laid at my feet in the air as smooth as glass, not a gauge moving in the cockpit. It was perfect. Now I'm thinking, we bad. <laughs> I feel sorry for Walter because he has to monitor five radios in the back seat, so I flipped the switch up just to listen. and. 
LA Center is controlling, they control all, when you fly Southwest Airlines, the guy's controlling everybody. But we're above controlled airspace. So they, they have us on their scope, but they're not talking to us. Now there's controllers all over the country, Jacksonville Center, Chicago Center, Seattle Center, you know. It's the same guy. They all talk the same. And it's really cool the way they talk because they make you feel important as a pilot. They don't just say, yeah, okay, here's your thing. They make you feel really cool. So sure enough, this was pre-GPS day. Some Cessna guy has to know his ground speed. Uh, LA Center Cessna November Tango Alpha, you got a ground speed readout for us? Now Center would like to say, who cares, get off free. <laughs> but no, he'll talk to him like he's John Glenn. Cessna November Alpha, we show you 90 knots, nine zero knots on the ground. And they do that sing-song, but that's how they talk. And it makes you feel kind of cool. Right after that, a twin bonanza came up to pimp the guy for speed, I guess. And, LA Center, Twin Beach, uh, whatever. You got a ground speed readout for us? And Center likes to God, it's Friday. Why me? God, please, just get off. But he's going to talk to him like he's Air Force One. Twin Beach, shall we show you 121, two zero knots on the ground? And right after that, a Navy F-18 out of Lemoore popped up on frequency. And you knew it was a Navy guy because he talked really slick on the radio. Center Dusty 5-2 speed check. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Dusty 5-2 has a ground speed indicator and that million dollar F-18 cockpit. It's right there in the heads up display. Why is he calling Center to broadcast his speed? I get it. We are just the meanest, baddest, fastest military jet in the valley today. We're taking our little Hornet jet over Mount Whitney and ripping across Death Valley. We want everyone from Fresno to the coast to know what real speed is. And you can almost hear a little, a little glee in the controller's voice like, we have put an end to this. <laughs> Dusty 5-2, we show you 620, 6-2, knots across the ground. And it was that across the ground. See that little knife like, I hope nobody else has the nerve to get on frequency now. And there wasn't an airliner from Seattle to San Diego that wanted to be next on freak. It's sort of an etiquette thing amongst flyers. And a 12-year-old was reaching for the mic button. <laughs> And I thought, oh, no, wait, Walter's in charge of the radios. I flew single seat all those years, but I'm in the family model now. And I, I went, no, it's the Navy that must die. It must die now. And I, and I thought, no, but if I do, I, well, I'll upset Walter, and I want us to be a good crew. And I, at that moment, I heard a click of the mic button in the back seat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Walter and I became a crew at that moment. And his best innocent voice L.A. Center, Aspen 3-0, have you got a ground speed readout for us? <laughs> you could almost hear a collective gasp on Freak, like all oh, the poor fools didn't hear the previous transmissions. Oh, they, they got crushed like a grape. It's, it's just a pilot thing. But Center had to give you that same voice. Aspen 3-0, we show you 1,992 knots <laughs> across the ground. When I knew I was going to like Walter a lot is when he came back and said, Center, we're showing a little closer to 2,000. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we did not hear another transmission on that frequency <laughs> all the way to the coast. The king of speed lived, the Navy had been flamed, and a crew had been formed. <laughs> For just a moment, it was absolutely fun being the fastest guys on the block. And what a voice, and that is the sound of America's best. The humor, well, 
That's what we love to do here on Our American Stories, bring it direct to you. And that's, well, that's U.S. Air Force retired pilot Brian Shule telling a story and just, well, shooting it a little bit. And we bring it to you here on Our American Stories. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. And just as important, stories like this, we want to hear them from you. You're in the military, wherever you are, whatever walk of life, musician, teacher, share your story with us. We'll shoot it right back at you here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose voice and life will surely captivate you. And in today's episode, Bob recalls his graduation from the Marine Corps boot camp and his ensuing assignments. The night before graduation, our assignments were announced. Out of 80 men, 58 would be deployed to Vietnam. Only seven were being sent off to a school. I was one of them. When my name was called, my DI hollered, McClellan, 3042, mechanized supply account. I asked him, sir, what is a supply account? He said, it means you're headed back east for supply accounting school. You're very lucky. You're a lucky private. You get to carry a typewriter instead of a machine gun. It will be your job, McClellan, to make sure our Marines have underwear and ammo when they go out on patrol. Assigned back to Camp Pendleton after school, it seemed I stepped into a beehive. The base lived up to its reputation as the gateway to the Pacific. It was just like my recruiter said. There are only two kinds of Marines in this world, young man those going to Vietnam, and those coming back. I knew upon my return to Camp Pendleton from school that my name would come up very soon. It was just a matter of time. For a few months, I enjoyed the Southern California weather and stateside freedom until I received a phone call from the clerk at the company headquarters. Your orders are here, Mac. Pick them up when you get back to the barracks. By the way, you're going to ground forces. Good luck to you. It was November 1967. I would be gone by Christmas. But at least I'd be home for Thanksgiving. When the football games ended and the cold beer was consumed, my family would sit around the table for Thanksgiving dinner. The sound of loud conversations and arguments over who got what piece of the turkey were very typical in my house. But once all the plates were filled and the eating started, the noise started to subside. It was during this lull that my mother turned to me and she said, Craig came home today and it would be nice if you went to visit him. I knew Craig had returned. 
I saw the feature story on him in the Sunday newspaper. They had a big picture of him sitting in his wheelchair, wearing his green Marine Corps uniform. One leg of his trousers was folded under, and the other covered his prosthesis. He lost one leg at the knee, and the other one at the hip. His right arm extended with a grasping device to use as a hand. He lost that arm at the shoulder. He was wounded two weeks before he was due to come home. Sitting prominently among the campaign ribbons on his chest was his Purple Heart and a Bronze Star with a V for Valor. He vacantly gazed into the camera with little life in his eyes. The article discussed his wounds and stories about his boyhood. They interviewed his teachers and peers who remarked about what a great track star he was and all the potential he had. He was full of dreams, they said, of a bright future. And how tragic it was that he would lose three limbs in the war. The article didn't even come close to the Craig that I knew. I told my mom, I said, I suppose I will. Immediately, my father leaned forward in his seat and with a stern look and his finger pointed directly at me, he said, you don't have to see him if you don't want to. This is your last lead before going overseas and seeing Craig is not going to do you or him any good. He will be here when you get home. See your friends and enjoy yourself while you can. But I did go see Craig. I had to. He was my friend. We were friends in high school. And now with both of us being in the Marines, it gave us something more intimate than just being buddies. He was my friend and a fellow Marine in trouble. And to leave without even visiting him would have been an unconscionable disregard of his sacrifice. The newspaper didn't discuss how he ended up joining at age 17 after dropping out of high school. He had poor grades, difficulties at home, and had not run track since ninth grade. He led a troubled life. I know because he spent some of that troubled life with my friends and myself. In 1965, at age 17, he left for the Marines, and at 19, he went to war. We spent the days together drinking all day. We talked and laughed about our crazy friends and our experiences in high school. The drinking, the fighting, the police, the mayhem we caused. In and out of our conversations, he would pause and recount in detail the area, the action, and the mine explosion that vaporized most of his body. He said it all happened so fast. One second he was trying to clear a path out of a village through a minefield that was being overrun when an explosion nearby caused him to move his foot just a couple inches too far. He said he heard the click of the trigger. Boom. He stepped on one. But Vietnam was far away for both of us, so we lost ourselves in the alcohol for those afternoons, and for a while it seemed as if he'd never left home. The fun quickly disappeared, however, when we went out into public. When Craig wheeled his chair into a bar, it seemed like everything stopped. The lights would continue to blink, and the jukebox kept playing, but the activity stopped, and it would become so quiet that you could hear the pool balls clicking in the back room. His anger was always just under the surface, and it would start to rise as the looks of the people gave evidence to all that he frightened them. He could see the looks of pity and aversion that people showed when they were near him. 
He made them uncomfortable, and he knew it. Conversations were very awkward. They ranged from cheerfulness as if nothing changed to sorrow for all that did. No one knew what to say to him. The welcome sign over the bar was not for him. His presence was too dark for levity, and his wounds were an ominous warning that his fate could be waiting for all the men in the bar. He knew, too, that the pretty girls would no longer be part of his life, and that they would never come back. He resented that the people around him were drinking and laughing, while he and men like him were getting shot and stepping on landmines serving their country. His drinking would accelerate, and as he verbally provoked people looking for a fight, he would get out of control. He wanted no intercession from me on his behalf. It didn't matter if anybody wanted to fight. It only mattered that he did. The loud cracking sound as he broke a pool cue on the edge of a table to running his wheelchair into someone or brandishing his pistol was evidence of the pain and conflict in a man who was down to his last 85 pounds of his body. No one would try to control or reason with him. The police, they would just simply let him go. He was a hurricane that you had to wait out until it exhausted itself. The pain from his body and psyche would become more visible as he tried to overcome his handicaps to be normal and fail. I have never seen any time in my life more pain in a human being than that of my friend. His emotions were uncontrollable, and he was unable to understand why they just didn't let him die on the battlefield and avoid coming home to this half-life that awaited him. Being around him, I felt impotent and helpless. There was just nothing I could do for him. He was so deeply wrapped in his pain and self-destruction that in a short time, he would recede from life and disappear. He told me that's what he wanted. He just wanted out. We talked a lot about what was going on in Vietnam, and though I tried to remember that not all men die or come home like Craig, the reality and consequences of war were very hard for me to ignore. I began to question the wisdom of enlisting and worried about what was ahead of me. I developed both doubt and fear. I understood now why my father cautioned me about making this visit to see him. In April 1983, the hurricane finally blew itself out. Craig Albers died at the age of 33 and is buried in the Willamette National Cemetery in Portland, Oregon. I still mourn the loss of my friend. I still think about him. I guess I always will. He deserves to be remembered. I understand more deeply now why he'd wish they'd left him there to die in the battlefields with his men rather than bring him home. He told me that there was honor and nobility dying on the battlefield with his comrades and being back here home alone. That was the Marine Corps way, he said. He felt guilty not being there with his men still fighting. Like his body, he thought there was something left incomplete by coming home. There was one more friend I had to say goodbye to before leaving for Camp Pendleton. Like Craig, he was in the news, only he was serving eight years in the state penitentiary. And when we come back, we continue with the McClellan Files, Bob McClellan's stories, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we return to Bob McClellan's story, now spending time with his childhood friends right before his first Marine Corps assignment. His mother drove me down on visiting day. I remember walking under the guard towers and through all the fencing and barbed wire walls to reach the door to the prison. Moving from one chamber to the next ended each time with the cold boom of the steel door slamming behind us. The loud click of the lock as the bars closed took us deeper and deeper into the prison. There was no way out. Deep into its interior, we were escorted into a large cafeteria and seated. A guard brought Charlie out to see us and stood by to keep a watchful eye on him while we talked. The room was full of noisy conversations as babies cried and people spoke in very loud voices. Within the concrete walls, the acoustics bombarded our ears with the cacophony of a chorus of wailing and verbal chaos. He seemed changed as we spoke. He didn't appear to be the man who put the knife to my throat. We talked about Craig and what was going on at home. He described to his mother how the warden showed interest in his potential and was giving him better jobs. He smiled when he told her that he attended church on a regular basis, which pleased her tremendously. He reported the various compliments he was so proud of that he was getting in his reports and how hopefully he would be released early, come home, stay with her, get a job. She was very pleased to hear he was doing so well. She had spent a lifetime visiting him in places like this and wanted to see her boy lead a happy Christian life. It was a wish she would never live to see, but for the moment her grief and pain was relieved. She became very emotional and she asked the guard if she could use the ladies' room and she left us to talk. I smiled and I told him I was really glad he was changing so much when he interrupted me and said, oh, that's I'm doing real well here. Man, I get on the outside now, I buy and sell dope, I make money selling the stuff I could smuggle back in here. He continued rapidly telling me about his plans when he got out, and it became real clear to me he was going to be the same man when he got out as he was going in, a dangerous, violent, drug-addicted criminal. He stayed that way until after many years of destruction, addiction, and 39 arrests, he went to his brother's apartment one day, and while sitting on the edge of the bed, stuck a shotgun in his mouth, pulled the trigger, and sprayed his brains all over the wall. Driving home with his mother from the prison, I stared out at the countryside and tried to absorb the experiences I'd had on my leave. Now that I was at the end of it and due to be deployed, I wondered again about the wisdom of my enlistment. I had two possibilities out of high school. Stay here and risk ending up like Charlie, or go in the Marines and possibly ending up like Craig. I tried to reason the answer out, but it escaped me. There was no clear answer, and I was hungry for some certainty, some certain outcome that I would be okay. At 17, I couldn't stand very high in my life experience to see what was ahead on the horizon. The answer waited for me out in the future, and I had to live through it to know what it contained. But I had to make a choice nonetheless. I didn't spend a lot of time deliberating my decision to enlist. I learned from my father that courage isn't found in thought. It lies in the ability 
to act in the face of uncertainty and take a chance. So I took one. On the night of the 16th of December, 1967, I stood in a long line of Marines waiting to get our assignments before departing for the Marine Transit Center at Camp Hanson, Okinawa. Some of the two-and-a-half-ton canvas-covered trucks were full of RC bag, while the others were loading Marines as they came out of the building and, once full, departed for El Toro Marine Corps Air Station. Each Marine carried in their record book the division and regiment to which they would be assigned. Standing with some men from my prior assignment, waiting to be called, we talked about the likelihood of being assigned to the logistical command in Da Nang when I noticed two Marines standing on a porch pointing to me and motioning me to come up front. Reaching the porch, I was greeted by Kassain, who was going overseas, and Scotty, who was not. I was surprised to see Scotty there and asked him, what are you doing up here? He said, I'm here on temporary duty. I work in order section, Mac. Where do you want to go? Vietnam or Okinawa? For a moment, I stood there trying to fathom what he was asking. In my confusion, I blurted out, Okinawa. Well, where in the hell is Okinawa? It's an island somewhere over near China or Japan, he said. He gathered four of us who all had the same MOS of supply accountants and marched us into the building past a line of Marines that snaked along the hallway toward a loud thumping sound at the front of it. At the desk was a Marine with different colored rubber stamps bearing the names of the many divisions and regiments we were headed for in a matter of hours. Do they need supply accountants at 3rd FSR, Scotty asked, and assign these Marines to the 4th Service Regiment, 3rd Marine Division, Camp Foster. The Marine at the desk took the four folders, opened them up, and with a boom, 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 he stamped 3rd FSR, 3rd Mardiv, into our record books. Our destiny was now determined and assured. I thought about the promise that I made to my father, he made me promise not to volunteer. I think we both felt it was ceremonial, as it was inconceivable that the possibility of not going to Vietnam even existed. I had mixed feelings about being a Marine on a small island in time of war. I felt guilty. I'm in the Marine Corps, for God's sakes. I felt a pull to prove myself and to see what I was really made of. This was the war of my generation, too, and it looked like I was going to miss it. But my father's words were very clear. If they need you, they will send you. If they don't, don't ask for trouble. I felt the angst of having something to prove to him. But my father didn't believe war is the place to prove something about yourself. You fight because it's necessary. You win so you can come home. To him, it was that simple. He'd fought at Guadalcanal in Korea. And yet this was the promise he extracted from me when I enlisted. I realized too that his opinion was the only one that mattered to me and if they don't send me then I won't be there. The next night I sat in a brightly lit classroom at Camp Hans in Okinawa waiting for the actual battalion and company to which I'd be assigned. Some time before dawn I fell asleep at my desk until the Marine next to me woke me to say hey hey I think they just called your name. I walked up to the counter I noticed that the room was almost empty. 
No doubt everyone was in the back getting their jungle boots, packs, jungle fatigues, and miscellaneous gear to get ready to head to Da Nang. Standing at the counter, the clerk simply opened my record book, stamped Headquarters Battalion Supply Company, 3rd FSR, and pointed to the door and said, All right, Marine, there'll be a bus here at 0800 to pick you up. Tell the driver you get off at Camp Foster. As I walked to the door, I walked by Kassane, Fury, and Green, who sat off to the side with a small group of Marines, stopping to ask, Hey, aren't you going to Camp Foster? I immediately sensed something had changed. Kassane opened his record book to reveal a red line stamped across 3rd FSR, and underneath it was stamped 1st Marine Division. During the morning hours, everyone had had their orders changed. Out of the two Boeing 727s that flew over the night before, there were only two of us waiting for the bus on the corner to go to Camp Foster, Okinawa. Everyone else headed south to Vietnam. And thanks to Bob McClellan for these stories, the McClellan Files. By the way, an underappreciated fact about our military is just how many support troops it takes to put one rifleman into the field of battle. There are about 10 support troops for each one dedicated to frontline combat. We don't hear enough about these men and women working in logistics, administration, transportation, and so much more. This is Our American Stories, Bob McClellan's story. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to your stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll produce them up and put them on the airwaves. Some of our very best pieces have come from you. The American people have, well, you all have great stories to tell and beautiful voices from all over this great country. It's been multiple decades since a nine-year-old kid shared his Coca-Cola with Pittsburgh Steelers star Mean Joe Green in one of the most famous commercials in American history. Most of us have seen that commercial many times, but the story behind the ad is just as great. Here's Greg Hengler. Joe Green was one of the most feared defenders in NFL history. In 13 seasons as defensive tackle with the Pittsburgh Steelers, the 6'4", 275-pound Joe Green was a 10-time Pro Bowler and a 2-time Defensive Player of the Year. He became an NFL icon and a first ballot Hall of Famer. And then there's that name. Here's teammates Franco Harris and Andy Russell. Is there a better name than Mean Joe Green? I mean, that name just flows. And I ask kids about that, and I say, Mean? And they say, Joe Green. He asked me one time, he said, Andy, why do they call me Mean? And I said, because you're mean. (laughs) Here's Steelers chairman Dan Rooney. 
were playing in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has the ball. And if they can make a first time, the game's over. They made it. They made the first time. And he went up, took the football, and threw it in the stands. And I said to my father, this guy's special. If he's that intense, if he's going to do something like that, we got a guy that we want. Some people ask that question, what does Joe really mean? Yeah, that was the perfect name for him. He hated to lose. That was part of his demeanor. He's here to win. He's here to beat that guy across from him. And he's not going to be nice about it. But inside the man who was the centerpiece of the steel curtain defense that led the Pittsburgh Steelers to four Super Bowl championships in six years was something unseen by the public eye. Here's Joe Green giving us a peek. When I was a senior in high school, my class voted me to be class president. And I declined. I think about that a lot. And it was basically because I was shy and didn't want to have to talk in front of the class or the student body. (laughs) But in 1979, Green's rugged public persona and life changed dramatically after being selected for a television commercial by Madison Avenue creative wizard Penny Hockey. We were asked to do an exploratory, that is to take the Coca-Cola brand and see where else it could go in its communications. The guys were sitting there saying, okay, well, who could we get? Well, we could get Lynn Swan, Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Mean Joe Green. And I said, wait, there's a guy called Mean Joe Green? Is he mean? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, that's perfect. We want the most intimidating human being we can find. And boy, did we get it. We wrote about 10 different storylines, and the very first one that we came up with was, let's take kind of a pathetic little kid who's just awestruck over some kind of superstar football hero. Uh, The kid has nothing to offer except he has the Coca-Cola. He gives the superstar the Coca-Cola, the superstar drinks it, shazam, he's a changed person. In the commercial, Mean Joe would have a memorable encounter with a trembling nine-year-old named Tommy Okan. My mom and my dad were both in television. As to our future weather, well, we expect the rain to... My mom was on-air talent. My dad was a director and a producer. I had started doing commercials probably when I was around five or so. So by the time we did the Coke commercial, I had probably done about 30 or 40 commercials up to that point. Let's go. Keep it up. you fumbled. <laughs> and the first day when we shot the commercial, there was a lot of downtime because they were doing a lot of work to the set. And uh, because of that, there wasn't a lot to do. So, of course, I had brought a football and went over to Joe and asked if he'd throw a football around. And he said, sure. He developed a sweet little relationship with Tommy and made Tommy much more comfortable. Okay. Now, giving the line, Joe. They were trying to get him to drink the whole Coke. 
and they had him maybe do that a couple of times and just said they were gonna the guy was gonna blow up after a while. He went through an awful lot of soda. And you know the the legend of course that he drank eighteen sixteen ounce bottles, equivalent to two and a quarter gallons. <laughs> Needless to say, when I start to shoot, the first thing out of my mouth was a big burp. <laughs> hey kid. All right, cut. <laughs> Talk about absolutely perfect timing. Super Bowl programs. Super Bowl souvenirs. Super Bowl pennants. Super the commercial ran on the Super Bowl, and then they won. And the rest is history. What could be better? Mr. Green? Mr. Green? Yeah. Want my Coke? It's okay. You can have it. Okay. Joe Green was probably the first black male that was cast in an, for a national brand. It was the fact that That's he was black and the little boy was white. It was a shock at that time, and people experienced it and really resonated to it. I don't know where that jersey went. I don't know if Joe took it back or who got it. I do know that that Christmas I got a package, and uh, it was a signed... Mean Joe Green jersey that I uh, still have to this day. But Tommy was not the only child whose life would be positively influenced by Joe Green. Here's Joe's wife, Agnes. I think uh, it changed our lives a lot. It changed Joe's personality a lot. Because so many kids were looking up to him, he decided he really wanted to be a role model for other kids. appeared with the Muppets and probably Elmo and was on children's TV shows. Well, you know, I used to be afraid of my own shadow. And then everybody told me that was silly. What are you afraid of? Well, lots of things. Like the whole offensive line of the Rams jumping on me. Yeah? We'd be walking around and little old ladies that I know didn't know anything about football would come up to Joe and talk to him. Listen, you're not a mean guy. He's just a big old teddy bear. Doing the Coca-Cola spot did change the image. I enjoyed it. I liked it. It made me uh, more approachable. To this day, I'm still rather amazed. I mean, it's the commercial that will not die. Although he was known to the world as Mean Joe, he is known to his grandkids as Papa Joe. When we went to uh, North Texas and you saw me interacting with the people and you were surprised. A little bit. Why? <laughs> um, I guess just because we know you as grandpa and then all these people are trying to talk to you and coming yeah. up to you. So okay. it's a little new. Yeah, these two, they had the same reaction. You didn't know. Like, whoa. 
The father of three and grandfather of seven credits the Coke ad with keeping him in the spotlight since his retirement in 1981. My public life, my football life, has been kept alive by the commercial. I think few people might know me as Mean Joe, but a lot of them know me as the Coca-Cola guy. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. The commercial that won't die. And it's so interesting that Mean Joe Green became, for so many young people, Sweet Joe Green, always to his kids and grandkids, Papa Joe. And what a terrific story about life. And in the end, the civilizing effect of kids on adults. Mean Joe Green's story, the Coca-Cola commercial story that the world fell in love with, here on Our American Stories. And to get all of our work, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories each week. Again, Mean Joe Green's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.